Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. This episode is brought to you by Easy Recess, your ultimate support for the first hour of resuscitation. This amazing phone app has drug dosing, treatment algorithms, and procedural aids all in under three clicks. Rapid access to life-saving critical info in a user-friendly interface. Try the app for free with the promo code EMCASES or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES. That's the letters E-Z recess.com slash EM cases. All right. A few months ago, I was out for drinks after this awesome jazz concert in Toronto with my wife and some friends, one of whom is a wonderful colleague who you may know from EM cases. She's the head of emergency medicine at the DFCM at the University of Toronto, Dr. Megan Landis. And we were chatting about some of the stresses of practicing emergency medicine. And then one of our non-doctor friends asked what the scariest presentation is to the emergency department. I mean, they didn't word it exactly like that, but they said, like, what's the scariest thing in the eMERGE? And Dr. Landis, without hesitation, said massive hemoptysis and explained what that was. So that got me thinking that out of the 450 or so EM cases episodes we've published, We haven't done a single one on hemoptysis, an oversight on my part for sure, I admit. So who better to invite as guest experts to enlighten us on this potentially hair-raising topic than two EM and intensive medicine trained master educators, Dr. Burke Tillman and Dr. Scott Weingart. Welcome back to EM Cases, my friends. It's it's a pleasure to be here, man. great to be back. Excellent. Let's start with the case then. So your ED nurse colleague taps you on the shoulder and tells you that they just got a call from EMS that a middle-aged man with alcohol use disorder is coming in, coughing up blood with an ETA of 10 minutes. They estimate about a quarter of a liter of bright red blood. He's tachycardic and his vitals are otherwise normal. And that's pretty much all the info you get. So Dr. Weingart, let's say you're the ED doc in this case. What are you going to do first to prepare for the arrival of this patient in your resuscitation bay? I mean, this answer is going to sound flip, but I think it's true. Uh, you shouldn't have to prepare anything because in a functional resuscitation area, everything you'd need for this patient should already be there. You should already have everything ready to go for airway management, all of the medications in a hair trigger fashion, ready to pull that trigger. And you shouldn't have to prepare anything. Now, I know in most EDs, that's not realistic. So get everything you need for advanced airway, failed airway, uh, potentially if you have it available, uh, the equipment for both a nasopharyngoscopy and a bronchoscopy and uh, intubation meds is what I would want to have available. Now, some of those may take a little bit longer than this patient arriving, but that would be in an ideal world. All right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, many of us don't have a bronch or a nasopharyngoscopy available in every resuscitation base. So that's something you might want to move in there. Your your usual stuff, get your team ready. Dr. Tillman, anything to add in terms of preparation? The one thing I've noticed even in a well-stocked resuscitation room is often at the head of the bed, there's only one suction canister that's hooked up at the start. And in any patient who's having fluids plus airway, I want to be able to clear that rapidly. 
So I'd like to ensure that our team has multiple sources of suction. So be it two or three suction canisters, extra yonkers, or other ways to clear the airway very quickly. So be it a meconium aspirator or something to help. Because really, based on the story, I'm not entirely sure where this blood is coming from and how much more blood is going to show up. So I, I completely agree with everything Dr. Weingart has said. And also just remembering many times where I've grabbed the second yonker and realized it's not connected to a suction container. So just making sure that for a patient like this, we have an excess of ability to clear fluid. All right. I think we can summarize that by saying suctions and scopes. <laughs> I like this. I like that. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the salad technique and meconium aspirators and all of that a bit later. But yeah, those are some of the things you might want to think about. Something to see where the blood is coming from and something to suction that blood away. All right. So let's get some more information in this case. So EMS arrives and they tell you that this is a 45-year-old man who's well known to your ED for alcohol-related emergency visits, who's had a dry cough for the last couple of weeks and today suddenly started coughing up bright red blood that he estimates was about a tablespoon at a time. His buddy called EMS when he coughed up more blood about an hour ago that covered the front of his shirt. He denies fever or chills, shortness of breath, or chest pain. And past medical history besides the alcohol use disorder includes esophageal varices that he's had banded before. There's no history of cancer. He takes no medications. He smokes half a pack a day. He's been homeless for the past year. On exam, he looks a bit pale. His heart rate's 125. The rest of his vitals are unremarkable, including a normal oxygen saturation of 95% on room air. Chest is clear with good entry bilaterally. And as you're finishing up your auscultation of his chest, he coughs up what looks like another quarter of a liter of bright red blood. As you alluded to, Dr. Tillman, first we have to figure out where this blood is coming from because we can't really assume that it's hemoptysis based on the EMS report. How do you distinguish between hemoptysis, which is blood coming from below the cords, from an upper airway source or a GI source? You know, this guy has alcohol use disorder, so I'm thinking GI source. But then again, patients with alcohol use disorder bleed from everywhere all the time anyhow, so that's not really helping me. Dr. Tillman, any pearls about how to figure out where the bleeding is coming from on initial presentation? Yeah, yeah. so I completely agree with what you just said there. Like, ah, alcohol use, this is going to be an upper GI bleed until proven otherwise. So I'll focus specifically on this case and then think about some of the things that have helped me in the past. One, this patient has given a great history, although it seems like from the evidence, history in diagnosing the source of bleed is the same as a coin flip, so they're right half the time. But you do have this sort of coughing, 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 then small amounts of blood. It's not like they were coughing, all of a sudden you have like a Mallory Weiss tear history and just blood starts coming. So they coughed for a little while, then the small amount of blood came, then the bleeding stopped, some more coughing, then some more blood came. So the two are very linked together. That doesn't necessarily mean there's not blood dripping down their cords or blood coming up from below making them cough. The second part is what the blood itself looks like. So usually blood in the stomach is at least a bit digested or starting to be. So sometimes you'll get some color changes in the blood, although I've certainly seen my fair share of massive upper GI bleeds that are straight red and terrifying. And then I can look at this patient and even without sticking a scope down their nose yet, if you can get them to open their mouth wide, you have a good light, you can see if there's blood dripping down from above. 
So I'm trying to use a couple of different facts to help me figure out. First of all, I would say that massive hemoptysis is a rarer diagnosis. So my pretest probability in most patients is it's not the lungs. Let's find it from somewhere else. Second, I use exactly how is this blood coming up? Is this just continuously coming? That, again, makes me think that it's a higher source that's just continuing to leak out. Then I look at the color of the blood. So if this is starting to be digested, it looks like they're coughing up some delicious coffee. Then I wonder more, is this digested and this ends up being hematemesis? Has there been associated trauma? Either they've been picking their nose or they've actually been hit in the face, so it's coming from above. And then what's the relationship between their coughing and their bleeding? And I try and put all of those things together, but understanding that making this diagnosis right off the bat is challenging, but at least in a patient like this who's able to cough, clears airway, sat well, you have some time to figure it out. So that's the way I look at it. I don't know, Scott, if you have other thoughts about how you deal with the where's the blood coming from issue. No, you hit it all. I would say some places don't have nasopharyngoscopy. And in those places, if you're skilled and, you know, perhaps you have a hyperangulated blade makes this even easier, but a standard video laryngoscope, you just try not to touch the tongue very much. You could actually have the patient stick their tongue out. So you could actually do a no touch so they don't gag so much. You could get a pretty good view of the posterior pharynx and see uh, where the blood's coming from, even without having the flexible uh, nasopharyngoscope. Great pearl there. So if you have a nasopharyngoscope, use that to find an upper airway source. And if you don't, then even video can help get a good view of the pharynx and see if there's some blood dripping down from the nares. All right, let's talk about anatomy some more. So where exactly does the hemoptysis usually come from? You know, there's venous bleeds, there's arterial bleeds, there's all kinds of anatomy down there. You've got the esophagus right next to the lungs. You've got the trachea, you've got the bronchi. Where exactly does the bleeding usually come from? Dr. Tillman? If you have true bill hemoptysis, you're looking about the vast majority coming from the high pressure bronchial arteries. So this tends to be an arterial in nature bleed when you're dealing with this really bad hemoptysis. So that's that's the big thing we're worried about. There are lots of other causes, like you can think of PEs causing maybe some necrosis or ischemic injury. You can think about tumors sort of eroding in things like that. You can think about tracheodominant fistulas, especially someone who's previously had a trach. But if you're a betting person, this is a bronchial artery. You want to find where that artery is and you want to make it no longer have blood in it somehow. All right. So just to underline that fact that upwards of 90% are from high pressure bronchial arteries, that this is an arterial bleed. So this is not the time to be uh, taking your time, so to speak. I want to talk a bit about risk stratification. So there's many different definitions of massive hemoptysis, life-threatening hemoptysis, and I get confused reading it because it seems like every definition I read is different. Dr. Weingart, when would you consider hemoptysis massive or life-threatening? In other words, how do you risk stratify hemoptysis patients? Yeah, look, you know, you can see all these objective terms in the literature. You, you know, you've seen, I'm sure, 200 to 600 over a acute phase of time, you know, in the course of a few hours. And great. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quantifying that way. For me, it's more of a gestalt. Oh, my God, this patient looks like crap versus, yeah, occasionally they cough into uh, the napkin and there's some blood there. That patient is 
not life-threatened. So really, I think it's clinical judgment more than anything else. And I think everything else just comes down to trying to create arbitrary cutoffs or a research paper. But in real life, if the patient looks like crap, they probably are in a life-threatening or massive hemoptysis type mode. So at least for me, that's what I've always done for characterization. All right. When you say looks like crap, I mean, you know, there's there's impending respiratory failure. There's obvious respiratory failure. Like what are some of the kind of things at the bedside that you're actually looking for? So someone coughs up, you know, they cough up a quarter liter of blood. That's significant. You know, let's say they just cough up a couple of tablespoons. I mean, when do you start to worry that, oh, this person is going to go down the drain? Yeah. I mean, look, that patient who's controlling their airway, they're coughing, they cough up into a napkin, they're able to control themselves into where it goes. And yeah, I mean, eventually if you stuck that all and scraped it off the napkin, you could quantify that. Maybe it hits 200. And yeah, that that meets the arbitrary definition. It's not like I'm not going to do something if I don't deem them to be life-threatening. They're still going to get stuff. But the alacrity with which it has to happen is uh, really spoken to by a sense of loss of control of the situation. And I guess that's what I'm alluding to is the patients who I deem massive, it's it's not that they're gently, politely coughing to a napkin. It's like they cough and blood is splattering everywhere because they don't have the time to actually get a napkin in front of their face. Um, it's, you know, pooling down their face. They're... You, might not be keeping up by coughing. And, you know, they're actually now look a little bit like they're drowning in front of you. These are the patients that fit the massive or life-threatening category in my mind. Then everyone else you could put in a sub-massive category. It doesn't mean they're not going to get emergent therapy, but they're not scaring me that they're going to lose their airway. Does that clarify it better, yeah, Anton? Yeah, great. All right. So that's a little bit about the vague definition of massive hemoptysis. And pretty much you're going to use your gestalt to decide which patients you're worried about. Once you're reasonably sure that you're dealing with hemoptysis based on what both Dr. Tillman and Dr. Weingart gave us all those nice clinical clues of how to make sure that this is hemoptysis and not something else, you need to start thinking about the differential diagnosis and find the source of bleeding. Those are kind of two of the main goals. It's important to tackle the differential diagnosis early on because different underlying causes may dictate your management. You know, if hemoptysis is from a PE, it's going to be managed very differently than hemoptysis from a malignancy or bronchiectasis or what have you. And there's a huge differential diagnosis from benign illnesses like so-called bronchitis to more serious infections like TB, aspergillosis, heart failure, PE, bronchiectasis, tracheonominate fistula, autoimmune vasculitis, foreign bodies, cocaine, malignancy, the list goes on and on. One of the most interesting causes is this uh, catamenial hemoptysis. That's the one you get from the proliferation of endometriosis. Now, some of these diagnoses, they need to be sorted out in the ED pretty much as soon as you can, while others can wait. So, Dr. Tillman, what's the best way to sort out those time-sensitive diagnoses in the ED and find that source of bleeding? I think one of the key things you highlighted when thinking about this is that huge variety of underlying causes. So in my brain, I'm trying to find out right away, is there one of these kill you now or change my management now diagnoses? So that's going to be like a tracheodominant fistula where you have arterial bleeding right at the top of their airway because you want to put pressure and stop that. Is this a massive arterial bleed? So maybe an aortobronchial fistula because they've had a stent in their aorta and it's eroded in. Or is this something where actually we anticoagulate, which seems so annoying in someone who's bleeding, so a PE. 
And I'm really trying to make sure that I understand I'm looking for that difference, a kill you arterial bleed versus something I need to anticoagulate. And really, to make that diagnosis, I want a CAT scan. I want a CAT scan that gets me at the very least an arterial phase because I'm looking for an arterial bleed. And if they have a very large PE, even a slightly missed timed phase CT scanner is going to get you a hint of a massive PE. So in my mind, this person comes in, they have true bill homoptosis. I want to find a way to get into that CAT scanner as soon as I possibly can. To me, this is more important than doing a bronch. Bronch both is a skill you need to develop, and then you're trying to stick something into an airway of a patient who's already bleeding on you, which is challenging to do. And often now you just got blood and trying to see exactly where blood's coming from with a fiber optic camera is hard. It could give me very useful advice if I'm intubating them of right versus left. But other than that, I'm not going down the bronch pathway. So again, when I think about this, I want to find the arterial bleed or make sure I don't need to anticoagulate them. And to do that, I need you in a CAT scan with contrast as soon as I can safely do it. Dr. Weingart? I can't agree enough. Um, this patient very well might need bronchoscopy, but what you could get immediately in the eMERGE is a CT scan in most places. And bronchoscopy could happen when someone else comes in to help. And if you have a moment where this patient is stable enough in terms of maintaining their airway to get a CT, that might not stay that way if you wait on it. So yeah, optimizing this patient to get a CT angiogram of their chest is the best thing you could do. If they don't need emergency airway management right now, then then get them to the CT scan. All right. So CT scans are key and you want to get them their CT scan as soon as possible to help sort out that differential diagnosis so that you know what management steps you're going to take next. I want to talk a little bit more about imaging, but before we do, a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. When it comes to imaging, there's, there's chest x-ray and point-of-care ultrasound. Dr. Tillman, chest x-ray, useful, not useful. We do it on pretty much every patient. We'll order a portable chest x-ray, waste of time. Uh, what can the chest x-ray tell you? What can't it tell you? Unfortunately, not super useful. You may get it because of logistics. You may not be able to get a CAT scan right now. You may not have access to anything else. And sometimes you can see the side of bleeding, like you get a chest x-ray, you're like, ah, that lung's white out. So now you know what side to put down to avoid contaminating the other lung. Is it going to tell you the etiology? That's rare because really we're thinking of a vascular insult. So there are some scenarios where it may help. You may see the graft in there and have a better sense that you're looking at some sort of adobronchial fistula. But really the chest x-ray for me is going to help me decide, is there one lung that's obviously contaminated and soiled and lets me localize where things are at, which I know we're going to talk about intubating these patients, which is a thrilling way to spend your shift but may provide some guidance as to how we're going to do that intubation. 
So I don't think a chest x-ray is a waste of time. But just as Scott said, if my choice is you can get a CT now or you can get a chest x-ray now and they're stable enough to go for that CT, I'm going for that CT. I do not need a chest x-ray to get a CT. So that's sort of my thought on the chest x-ray. I'll let Scott chat a bit about ultrasound if he has any pearls there. Yeah, I can't agree more about that chest x-ray stuff. You said it perfectly. Uh, I don't see the utility of POCUS here. You know, I'm a big ultrasound fan. I don't, I can't imagine how it's going to help you in this case. Maybe I'm wrong. Anton, do you have any ideas of how ultrasound could help? You know, if what, if there's a delay to imaging in any other way, you can see if there's a whiteout in one lung. I can't imagine that it would change much else in terms of your differential diagnosis. I don't, I don't even know that. You see, what you're seeing, you know, in something like a pulmonary edema situation is uh, you're seeing interstitial findings, and I'm not sure that would really show up. I mean, I guess you could start seeing the things that look as if they were a pneumonia. Like if you have one sign that's all B lines with a hepatized lung, like, okay, and the other side is like all A lines, like that would be the only thing. And that's pretty far gone, massive hemoptysis. Like probably if you're seeing that patient, you're tubing them because uh, they have a destroyed lung. So, so I sort of agree that just like point of care ultrasound isn't as helpful in asthma because it's A lines, it's sort of the point of care ultrasound isn't as helpful here. Because by the time they get what we'd see as a classic finding, they might be dead. All right. I think we're agreeing that there's not much role for POCUS. I do invite all those POCUS keeners out there to uh, email me with any additional comments about POCUS in, in these kinds of patients. I want to move on to the management of non-massive hemoptysis. So again, this is the patient that's taking their napkin and coughing a little bit of blood into their napkin. Let's say your patient has non-massive hemoptysis and you'd like to settle their hemoptysis with the aim of sending them home, give them something while you're waiting for the test results and such. Here's where our favorite controversial hemorrhage halter comes in, TXA. There are a bunch of options described in the literature when it comes to TXA for hemoptysis. There's inhaled nebulized TXA, there's IV TXA, there's oral TXA. Dr. Tillman, what's your assessment of the literature when it comes to using TXA for hemoptysis? I think most people who have talked with me know my love of TXA. Looking at the literature in this topic and also thinking of the TXA literature as a whole, I'm actually a fan of the nebulized TXA in this scenario. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons behind that. First of all, we're thinking that the TXA is going to be delivered directly to the area of interest being the lungs. So I like that idea. And then if we think of TXA in some other bleeding problems that weren't trauma, so think of the HALTIT trial, IV TXA appeared to have no benefit and maybe increased thrombotic complications. And a lot of that was related to maybe we gave TXA too late because we didn't know when the bleeding started. That could be the exact same scenario we're dealing with here. We know when they started coughing up the blood, but we don't know exactly when the blood started appearing in their lungs. So I always get a little worried, is a systemic therapy for a sort of a topical issue going to have a major impact or is it going to have a minor impact and sort of have the same issues we had in upper GI bleeds? The other thing I like about using nebulized TXA is I can start the patient on it right as they come in. You get the nebulizer mask, you throw it on their face, you add in the TXA. So that little bit of blood coming up, they can start inhaling this in and get treatment right away. The last part is the differential here is broad, and potentially this is someone who needs to be anticoagulated. So 
am I going to give them IVTXA to follow that up with some form of heparinoid right afterwards? It makes me feel a little chagrined when I do that. Whereas if I'm giving you nebulized TXA, that's actually not going to impact the entire coagulation cascade systemically. So because of all of those things, I'm a fan of the nebulized TXA. And even looking at some of the bronch-based studies, it does suggest that using TXA topically is probably at least as effective as using epinephrine topically through a bronchoscope. So it does suggest that this nebulized TXA has some impact. So putting all those things together, you come in, you're coughing up blood, you can tolerate having a nebulizer on, have some nebulized TXA. All right. So that's nebulized TXA. What about IV TXA? Any role there? I mean, my understanding is that almost all the studies are on non-massive hemoptysis. And if someone's having massive hemoptysis in front of you, you might not be able to get that nebulizer on. Is there any role for IVTXA? I mean, we give it like water in trauma. So I think the answer is unclear. Like the studies that are out there do suggest some benefit. They're all very small. We're using single center. So there's the standard sort of limitations you have. And then if you sort of think back to why is TXA given in trauma, you think there's a whole bunch of fibrin breakdown from significant tissue damage. Is that happening here? So it's it's hard for me to know. Do I use IVTXA? Yes. Am I saying this is evidence-based? No. Is that sort of confusing to me? Yes. So in the end, I really try and use it topically. If I truly think that they have fibrin destruction, then I'm going to give them some IVTXA. I'm not going to be giving them POTXA. The bit of evidence says likely no difference than placebo. And either you're stable enough to get nebulized or you're too unstable, and maybe I'll try the IVTXA. Of course, when you get into limited evidence, you're getting the expert opinion. Scott, not sure if you have a different approach here. You laid it out exactly how I, I mean, if they're dying in front of you, kitchen sink, but otherwise, I think the nebulized is absolutely the way to go. There are several studies on nebulized TXA. They're not the greatest but there's very little downside and it makes total physiologic sense. And the studies that are out there do suggest a benefit. So nebulized TXA it is. And IV, you might throw in TXA when the patient's dying in front of you, but otherwise uh, no huge role for IV TXA. I want to move on to the management of massive hemoptysis. But before we get onto your algorithm of what you might do with these patients, I want to understand first the how and why. So, Dr. Weingart, can you explain to us how and why these patients crash and die? Like, what's going on that actually makes them circle the drain, so to speak? Yeah, th- this is the big pearl in hemoptysis is everyone gets scared of the blood and it's like, oh no, the patient's bleeding and they go down a exsanguination pathway. You know, that's not going to be the problem here. Problem is that the patients drown. Hemoptysis is death by drowning, and they're drowning on their own blood. So, so that's really the problem. It requires such a scant amount of blood to fully fill up the bronchial tree that if the patient's not able to clear that, then they no longer are capable of oxygenating, and they die a death of drowning. So that is the key point to keep in mind. So this is a respiratory issue. This is hypoxia. This is gas exchange is not happening anymore respiratory arrest. This is kind of the pathway that these patients are going down, similar to drowning. Although I just want to underline that in in a drowning in water, 
you are not suctioning, whereas in hemoptysis, you are suctioning. Big difference there. I just don't want our audience to get confused. Dr. Tillman, anything to add in terms of the how and why these patients crash and die? So I completely agree with what Scott said there. This is a respiratory issue. The other thing to always keep in mind is the respiratory effort also links to how much blood they can cough up. So sometimes we think, oh, it's just a tiny bit of blood. They're clearly doing fine. But if you're only able to cough up a tiny bit of blood and your SATs are like 88, this is actually the tiring out patient. It's the same thing we think in asthma where, oh, the CO2 is normal in this patient who's hyperventilating. Again, that's that's a sign that things are going poorly. So homopsis patients clearing a small amount of blood who already are hypoxic, are in frank respiratory distress, and are on the edge of respiratory failure. So just really important, don't focus on how much blood there is. This is a hypoxic respiratory issue. All right. So now that we understand a bit about how these patients crash and die from hemoptysis, Dr. Weingart, can you give us an overview of your sort of algorithm for management of massive hemoptysis? And then we can get into some of the details about the various steps. I did find a great algorithm in your uh, internet book of critical care, which was designed a little bit more for the ICU. But from an emergency perspective, if there's an algorithm for massive hemoptysis, what would that be? Yeah, well, you know, you have to approach it in two ways. The first way is what you're going to do as the eMERGE doc and then what to eventually do when you start having more information roll in. So let's deal with the first one first. So you're going to quickly assess, does this patient need airway management right now? You know, just as Bork alluded to, are they able through their coughing to control the amount of blood or not? And uh, if they can't, then obviously you're going to move to an immediate intubation strategy. But let's say you have a little bit of time. Now's the time to call everybody. And I really do mean everybody. There's a lot of people you want to notify. And in fact, the way to play it, if your hospital has a PERT team, a pulmonary embolism response team is, and you should talk about this beforehand with them, but I really like the idea of calling the PERT team for a hemoptysis case because you get the exact people you need, which are people like pulmonology, CT surgery, radiology, potentially the interventional radiology guys. You get them all on the phone at one time rather than having to make seven separate phone calls. Now, if your hospital doesn't have a PERT team, then you're going to call all those people individually or better yet, have one of your colleagues make those calls so you could go back to the patient. If they have any kind of coagulopathy, obviously you're going to reverse that. You're going to do the nebulized TXA. I think even in massive, it's worth it. It's not going to hurt. And then you're going to decide at this point, after, you know, making all these initial moves, is the patient safe enough to go to CT scan with an unprotected airway? And that is really going to be the key determination for the eMERGE doc. If they could go, if they're safe to go, and I think someone should go with them to the CT scanner, then get the CT. If they're not, then you really have to make a tough call here because you can just say, oh, well, I'll just intubate them and then get the CT scan. Well, yeah, you know, but as soon as you intubate, the the clock starts ticking on a little bit of misery because now you're in charge of managing those patients' uh, blood secretions as opposed to them being able to do it on their own. And you might not be as good at it as they are. So sometimes, you know, they're too sick to go to CT, but they're not at the point where I want to intubate them right now. Getting some of the team to gather and make a determination of what's next may be a worthwhile way to go. And, you know, your, your choices may be, okay, we're going to intubate. We're going to try a bronch at the bedside. We're going to intubate. We're going to go right to IR. We're not going to bother with the CT scan. We're going to intubate. We're going to go to CT scan. But in the situations where the patient 
is able to maintain their airway, it's easy. Just go to CT. And let me stop there, see what else Bork has to add, and then maybe we'll uh, go some further questions with the algorithm, Anton. I agree with everything you, you've just said there. I'll just reemphasize a couple of important points. One, because of this debate about, oh, is it PE versus something else? Sometimes people try and overthink reversing coagulopathy. This is massive hemoptysis. Reverse the coagulopathy. We can always anticoagulate them later. Don't worry, the drugs still work. But if someone's coming in with massive hemoptysis, don't galaxy brain it, just reverse the coagulopathy. So I would highlight that one first of all. And I think you maybe even understated the amount of misery you create for yourself when you intubate these patients. I don't know if it's a bit of misery or intense misery. We all know that ventilators just aren't as good as human beings. Sometimes, yes, you need to intubate them. That's what you need to do to save their life. It is very difficult to manage a patient who has massive hemoptysis who now cannot cough and clear their airway. So it just highlights the importance of this decision, the reason why you call in everyone so that you can have a very clear plan when slash if you do control the airway. And also you have an expert provider, be it yourself as the emergency physician or someone from the supporting team who can go to CAT scan with them because these are dynamic patients. They may have been safe five minutes ago when you went to the CT scanner and now they're lying on their back on the table and they're a small little volcano with blood coming out of their mouth, and it's no longer safe. So I think all those points Scott raised are just so important, which is why I have wasted your time to repeat them. Can I add one more thing, Anton? I've only seen this done once, and it was mind-blowing, and I don't understand if it's a real thing that can be done or this person was just going rogue. But you know, the point Bork just mentioned, that the patients are usually fine or maybe fine sitting up, and then you lie them flat on their back, and all hell arises. I actually had a patient that I took, they were coughing up blood, and the radiologist gave permission to the techs to scan the patient on their side. And when you think about it, it's like, why can't we do this? You know, the machine is perfectly capable of bringing out the images in whatever orientation they're in, and it just made it so much easier. And yet, I've never seen anyone else do this. I don't know, Bork, did you ever ever had this experience? But it was like, why the F are we not scanning a lot of different patient types on their side when it's just so much easier for them to manage their secretion. That sounds like a fantastic idea. I've never done it. I have seen radiology recommend a prone CT scan for specific disease workup. I've just never seen it happen. So it strikes me it should be possible. And again, this probably highlights, as you mentioned earlier, getting the whole PERC team or everyone involved so you can speak with radiology and be like, hey, can we just put them on their side for this CAT scan? That way they might not die. It seems like a very simple request. I love it. All right. Well, that was some amazing stuff on the sort of algorithm. I just want to review there. So number one, airway, yes or no. And we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about the indications for airway, remembering that humans are very good at coughing and clearing blood. Number two, call your friends. So if you have a PE response team, that covers all your friends that you need. Um, if you don't, you need to be thinking about interventional radiology, interventional RESP, uh, ICU, et cetera. Reverse any anticoagulants, and we'll talk about the details of that soon. And even, Dr. Tillman point out, even if you still have PE on the differential diagnosis, if they're bleeding like crazy and they're in respiratory failure, you still need to reverse the anticoagulants. TXA, nebulized is pretty much the way to go. 
then the decision of CT, yes or no, are they safe enough to go for CT, which is often a difficult decision. Then it's not a pure algorithm. It's going to depend on the patient whether you do CT and then bronc, which is ideally what you want, whether you intubate and then CT, whether you do CT and then intubate and then bronc. That's going to be uh, something that you might want to discuss with your friends that you've uh, called earlier on. And one nice pearl, if you can get them to the CT, is to ask the radiologist if they're willing to CT them with the bleeding lung down, because that makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. And uh, maybe that's something I should all be talking to our radiologists about in advance. Just a quick break here. On our last EM Quick Hits podcast, Dr. Jason Hine eloquently talked about procedural skills decay. And I forgot to mention that Dr. Hine is the founder and chief academic officer of SimKit. So what is SimKit? Based on the educational theories of multimodal spaced repetition that I love and have based EM Case's learning system on, SimKit delivers crite kits and lateral canthotomy kits and all kinds of other procedural kits to your home and then provides instructional videos and quizzes to prevent that procedural skills decay. I just did the crike one myself and have to say that the next time I'm faced with a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation, I'll be much more confident and efficient in doing that crike. And also just to let you know that there are just a handful of tickets left for online podcast camp, November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th at podcastcamp.org. And that's for all you budding podcasters out there. All right, back to hemoptysis and our discussion of airway management. I want to get more into airway management and talk about the indications for securing the airway. And as we've already talked about, patients are very good at clearing blood on their own. And ideally, you actually do not want to intubate them because you can run into more trouble. But on the flip side, there are some patients that if you don't intubate them now, they will die. So what are some of the factors that you take into consideration when deciding whether to intubate a patient with massive hemoptysis or not? Uh, Dr. Weingart, you go first. All right. So it's when the patient starts tiring out, when their cough is no longer actually clearing their secretions or the big cough they have before now is, and they sound like they're actually breathing through liquid. That's one indication. Second one is they're actually, you know, showing you frank hypoxemia. You know, they're desaturating. Uh, the patient starts having severe dyspnea. They, they start moving around, like pointing, trying to tell you that they're drowning. Or the last one is, they're tenuous, but okay, sitting in the emergency department, but you have no feeling they're going to be safe to lie flat on the interventional radiology table for any period of time. They're just not safe to go for the procedure. And then you'd intubate them right before they left for that procedure. Dr. Tillman? Again, I 100% agree with Scott. I would say the most challenging group is that third group where you're like, ah, if I didn't have to do anything, I would not put this tube in, but now we need to do something. I would also highlight the importance of discussing that with your patient when you do this, because these are very high risk scenarios. Like that's a patient who is protecting their airway, but it's currently a bridge to nowhere. They need to be intubated to have things completed. But you've also realized in your brain that intubation is risky. So the patient needs to understand what's going to happen and having a good informed discussion. And this is why you have the whole team there as well. Because the first two groups, that's sort of easy. If you don't do anything, they're going to die. This third group, they need an intervention or they're likely going to die. But to support their airway for that intervention is high risk. 
Everyone needs to be involved. You need to have a good plan, which we're going to get to very shortly. And the patients and the family needs to understand what's about to happen. Excellent. So let's say we're in the group that you need to intubate now. What is your airway strategy of choice? So are you using awake intubation, delayed sequence intubation, RSI, bronchoscopic intubation? Dr. Weingart, you start. What's your management strategy? Sure. So, you know, there might be what I would do and then what I'd recommend in general. Let me do the latter one first. In general, I think if you're being forced to intubate, then RSI is probably your best move in this because you want your first shot to actually work out. I don't think bronchoscopic intubation is a smart idea at all in these patients for a couple of reasons. One, familiarity is not there as much as it is with standard laryngoscopy for almost everyone. But more importantly, the mismatch in the size of the tube you want to put in and the bronch leads to a lot of problems actually passing that endotracheal tube through the cords because you have a small bronchoscope and you have what should be an enormous ET tube. So I really think it's going to be some form of video laryngoscopy. Now, you would argue, I think, if you really want to get to the picayune details that you should use standard geometry because that way, if the camera gets splooged out with blood, you can still use it as a direct laryngoscope and you haven't burned your bridges like you would with a hyperangulated. And I like a bougie in these patients because it makes it a little bit easier to get that great big tube in there, I find. So for me, the approach I'd recommend for most people is RSI, standard geometry video, an eight and a half or nine sized ET tube with a bougie, get it in there through the cords. All of the bronchoscopic stuff comes after you have that endotracheal tube in place. Now, I said I might do it a little differently. Depending on the situation, I might actually do the patient awake. It allows them to continue to cough, obviously wear eye and face protection because you're going to get totally covered in blood, and it doesn't burn any bridges. But a lot of people are not familiar with awake intubation. This is not the time to start trying new things that you've done once in your entire career. So maybe for those folks, RSI is the way to go. I love that because... We're really just doing what we're best at, which is RSI with video and a bougie, which hopefully we're just doing anyways for any patient who needs the tube. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on the awake intubation if you are skilled at that? I mean, there's the kind of awake intubation where you're topicalizing. There's different kinds of awake intubation as we've debated about in the past on EM cases. What kind of awake intubation are you talking about that you would do if you're skilled? You could have, you know, in most patients, you know, to wake the super elegant George Kovach style topicalized intubation. It's beautiful. It's not going to work on these patients because they have just too much uh, liquid in their airway and you don't have the time necessarily. So for me, if I'm going to do these awake, it's always going to be a ketamine awake intubation. MCRIT has a great description of exactly how to do a ketamine awake intubation. So Dr. Tillman, any thoughts about your airway strategy? Are you just doing a straight up RSI with bougie and video? Are you doing the occasional awake? What are your thoughts on your airway strategy of choice for massive hemoptysis? I will admit I hate doing awake intubations. Yes, I've done many of them. Almost always ketamine facilitated. The patients tend not to enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. No one is happy, except they're still alive. So, you know, families are happy. But Ideally, I'm probably going to be doing an RSI based on the idea that that's going to give the vast majority of us the highest first pass success, as Scott already mentioned. I would also sort of reinforce a statement that topicalization isn't the way we want to go because the whole idea, if you're doing a facilitate awake intubation, is the patient's got to keep coughing. And once you start to just fill them up lidocaine, let's say you are successful and you get everything topicalized. Well, that's great. They won't cough anymore, except that's the whole darn reason you're keeping them awake. 
So if I've decided I don't want to play the bougie to the bubbles game, which is also challenging, and I do need to keep this patient awake because there's just so much darn blood, maybe it's something I think might actually have a massive upper GI bleed. I'm not entirely sure. Those patients I often do have to do awake so they clear their airway. Then, yeah, it's it's ketamine sort of titrated in so that they can tolerate me sticking a laryngoscope. Uh, and I agree with the trying to have standard geometry because I found in the majority of soiled airway patients I have to intubate, I'm going to be using a bougie. And it's much easier instead of having to try and bend that bougie around that hyper angle, although it works, it's easier to do when you have the lined up geometry. Fantastic. Before we move on to more about the tools of choice for airway, I'm just anticipating some listeners thinking, why would you use video if there's the potential of your video just to get covered in blood? And then it's just this frustrating thing where you're continuously getting the camera splattered with blood. You can't really see what you're doing. They'd argue that it's better to not use video and just use direct. Dr. Weingart, any answer to that? Well, it's not better. That's the thing. I mean, it, it might be the same if the camera gets spooged with blood, but it's, it's not worse. You haven't lost anything by doing standard geometry video. It's, it just becomes a direct laryngoscope at that point if the camera gets spooged out. So there's no downside. But the upside is that sometimes you do have a fantastic view of the cords. You know, you just happen to time it and then it makes it a lot easier. So no downside, only upside. And I just don't think direct laryngoscopy should be used for anything anymore because standard geometry video allows you to do both. Let's talk about tools a little bit more. So, Dr. Weingart, you had mentioned, you know, a minimum eight ET tube, you know, eight and a half, nine is, is probably preferable. That's, you know, a single lumen ET tube. There's double lumen ET tubes. There's bronchial blockers. There's all kinds of other toys that you can use in these patients. What do you suggest? We just stick with our single ET tube, a big one, keep it simple. Or should we be trying a double lumen ET tube, a bronchial blocker? Like, what about all these other toys that they talk about in the in the ICU? Let's pretend you could actually find a double lumen tube and get it to the eMERGE. Let's pretend you decided that was a smart idea. Everyone's going to hate you if you actually place that. And the chance of you placing it successfully uh, are really slim because they're a real pain in the ass, even in the hands of people who use these every day. But the easy answer, I'm, you know, I'm being flippant. Don't use a double lumen ever. Things like endobronchial blockers are fantastic. They're put through big single lumen ET tubes. So for the eMERGE doc, what they want to do to be a superstar is put in a great big single lumen tube, and then everyone will love you. You're able to bronch through it. You're able to put an interventional bronchoscope through it. You're able to put an endobronchial blocker through it. Everyone's going to think you're a superstar. If you actually place the double lumen tube and we're patting yourself on the back, everyone's going to come down and be like, this patient needs to be reintubated. So yeah, just don't do that. Okay. Double lumen tubes are out. If you start running into horrible problems, you don't have blockers, which you're not going to have in the emergency department, you're going to main stem and it's going to go down the right. And if everything's now better, oh, look, there's not blood pouring out of the end of the tracheal tube, score. And if it's not, then you got to pull it back till it's back in the trachea. And now you stick a bougie through the endotracheal tube and try to get the endotracheal tube down the left main stem. You know, you actually put the bougie down so that the uh, coup de tip is facing the ceiling and then you rotate it 90 degrees counterclockwise and you hope 
that when it hits the carina, it goes to the left. And it might take a couple tries. You know, it might be a few times that you actually, you know, put the bougie down and then advance the tube and it's still blood pouring out, blood pouring out. And you're like, oh, well, got to do that again. So you pull the ET tube back into the trachea. You take the bougie out. You find the coup de tip. You point it to the ceiling again. And again, you orient it to the left. And again, you push it down, hoping it goes down the left main stem. And then you advance the tube and you take the bougie out and hope this time you get it. And eventually you're going to get down to do a left main stem intubation. And then you're set for now. Yeah, so we are very much on the same page. Get the biggest tube you can down there. Yeah, if you run into problems, just push it farther till you get into the lung that doesn't bleed. I want to talk about the logistics of patient positioning. So, you know, you don't want to be lying your patient flat because you're causing them to drown. You want the lung that's bleeding side down if you can. But Dr. Weingart, could you could you talk a little bit about the logistics of this? You're doing your RSI. You're trying to do it sort of head up, but you want the patient's lung that's bleeding down. Like, how are you actually going to make this happen? No, the reason it's confusing is like we're blending two things here. Like the position you keep the patient in before intubation and then after they're intubated, which is one thing. And then the position they're being intubated in. And so the position they're being intubated in is just your standard positioning, which shouldn't be the patient flat ever for any intubation. You should always have the head of the bed up somewhat 30, 45 degrees. And that's how I'd intubate these patients as well. I'd probably have them head up 45 degrees so you could actually see all your landmarks and make your first shot the best shot and actually get in. But, you know, once they're actually intubated, then you want to put the bleeding side down. And before they're intubated, before you're actually starting your airway management, you could put the bleeding side down. So that, that's how to thread that needle. Perfect. All right. I want to talk about suctioning blood. Dr. Weingart, you've described before on your website the salad technique. We talked a little bit about having a pile of yonkers that are hooked up properly. We've talked about meconium aspirators. Dr. Weingart, what is the best way to suction massive amounts of blood in the airway. Okay. So the best way for both intubation and for suctioning is me requiring a very vague disclosure of conflict of interest, which is I am friends with the inventor. I don't take any money. I don't you know, have anything to do with the monetary side, but I'm good friends with Jim Ducanto. And Jim has invented the Ducanto suction catheter. And I think it's it's really a necessary item for hemoptysis management because yank hours are not meant to do what we need them to do in this case. Yankowers were meant to actually be able to apply direct pressure to bleeding vessels while doing tonsillectomies. So they were not made for large volume suctioning. What we need is something that can handle large volume suctioning. But it goes a step further in hemoptysis because what the decanto allows you to do is get in there during the beginning of your airway management with a laryngoscope in one hand and the Ducanto suction catheter in the other. So you have a laryngoscope in your left hand, Ducanto in your right. And if you get in there and start looking and there's massive amounts of blood, you can now suction as you're looking with the laryngoscope and you could keep suctioning and moving gently forward until you see glottis. And you're going to be able to see it because you're actually suctioning in real time. And then you stick the Ducanto catheter through the vocal cords. So now you're continuing to suction through the vocal cords, and now you could disconnect the suction and put a bougie through the Ducanto catheter and then take out the suction catheter and put an endotracheal tube over it. There's no other option to be able in the setting of when there's just massive amounts of bleeding to really get this done and have something go through the cords as easily as you can do the decanto. Now, and they're worth buying because they're just a little bit more expensive than the Ankowers. And you don't stock your entire department with them. 
because that would be more expensive. You just keep them aside for special situations like intubation or hemoptysis players. Now, let's say you didn't listen to me, you don't have the Ducanto suction catheter. We published in the anesthesia literature, my wife and I, a situation where you could take a meconium aspirator and a bronch port and actually create an endotracheal tube that could be suctioning while it actually has a stylet in it and you're able to place that through the cords as well. So it does what the Ducanto does, but it doesn't do it as well. It's a little unwieldy. It's not as much fun. And I say this as someone who created that technique. Um, I would rather have the Ducanto suction catheter. So there you go. There's my my plea for you to uh, help out my friend. Excellent. Okay. So Ducanto, if you have it, meconium aspirator, if you don't. Scott, we're friends, so does that make me have a conflict of interest as well? Yeah, <laughs> well yeah, I'm yeah, friends with you, you and you're you friends with Decanto. Second order, you know, perversion with all sorts of horrible stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Tillman, any comments about tools for suctioning, the best way to suction, pearls or pitfalls when it comes to that scary situation where everything is just filling with blood and you can't see anything and you just want to get that blood out of the way? Yeah. So I think this comes back to the question you asked earlier about why would you use video in a bloody airway? As Scott described, you actually can advance good high volume suction just in front of your video and you have a fairly good chance of protecting that screen. I don't have the Ducanto, so I, I can't comment on its use, but I have used meconium aspirators for this. So uh, thank you for publishing that because I, I do find that very useful because, yeah, the Yonker is just, it's not big enough. The other thing you can do is use your friends here, right? Like have someone else either putting a second suction in, so suction off to the left side where you're pushing things out of the way with the ring laryngoscope, and also if you can get down there, get things clear with meconium aspirator suctioning, but you can't quite get that one down, then someone can either be holding the aspirator while you stick a bougie in, or vice versa, you're holding the aspirator and they stick the bougie in. So, so the whole idea is it sounds like you're doing the, what the Decanto does. I've not used it. You're just taking two people to do it. It's important to understand that you can actually protect your video to give you that nice view, but you need high volume suction the Yonker doesn't do it. You need another tool. If you don't have that tool, as long as you have a pediatric resuscitation cart, those should have meconium aspirators on them. If you work in a hospital with a NICU, it'll definitely have meconium aspirators up there. And when we go all the way back to the game, we said, what do we need to prepare? You can have that in advance so that you can clear out the blood and get a bougie through there at the very least. Fantastic. One more thing, Anton, and this is not going to be in the heat of the moment, but I think it's worthwhile, and maybe this is the podcast that sparks people to do it. It's worth getting your biomechanical folks to actually test how good your suction is. I found many emergency departments, their suction is deplorable. They're at the end of the chain of the vacuum system for the hospital, and the suction, it's barely adequate. And these are the cases that will teach you that this is the difference between life and death. And you want a full vacuum. No one deserves a full vacuum more than the eMERGE because we're the ones who deal with massive vomiting, massive hemoptysis, all of that stuff on a regular basis. And it's almost worth, if they can't get you, a reliable, powerful suction current to get a standalone suction unit like they have in the operating rooms. Because on cases like this, it can be the difference between visualization and complete blood out.
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Easy Recess, your ultimate support to save lives during the first hour of resuscitation. Picture this. You're faced with intubating a seizing child, managing a peri-arrest patient with a beta blocker overdose, or resuscitating a breathless premature newborn. Calculating doses, setting up drips, choosing the right equipment, and remembering each step can be overwhelming. Easy Recess changes the game. Download Easy Recess today. Use promo code EMCases, that's one word, E-M-C-A-S-E-S, to get your first two months free or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCases for more details. And Easy Recess is E-Z-R-E-S-U-S. I want to get to the situation where you're doing everything right with the suctioning. Let's say you're using meconium aspirator, you've got a friend helping, or you're using the decanto, you're doing everything right, but still, you're not going fast enough to get all that blood out of the way. What's your next move? So this is like a really scary situation. You're suctioning everything and you still can't see anything. Like there's no way you're going to be able to intubate this patient. What's your next move, Dr. Weingart? Next move is to place a supraglottic airway. That's not going to be definitive. That's not, even if they manage to oxygenate with that, you don't stop there because that is not going to do the job that this patient needs done, but it can temporize a little bit as you're performing the next step, which is what has to happen. And then you perform a cricothrotomy on this patient. And then, you know, it's a landmark by touch. And so it doesn't matter how much bleeding is coming out of the airway at that point. And so they should be no more difficult than a non-homoptosis cricothrotomy. And there's no shame in that. And, you know, you were talking before about lung isolation. Well, well, you know, now you actually have a, a different option for lung isolation because once that crike is in, you can now place an endotracheal through, through the cords. I'm not saying do this empirically because of uh, the ability to now have two things down there in the trachea, but there's no shame if you can't visualize to go to a cricothrotomy. You didn't fail. This was, as Rich Levitan calls it, a surgically inevitable airway. And so uh, you should not try multiple attempts with a patient who is desaturating that can't be reoxygenated uh, above. You should just very rapidly transit down to the front of the neck. Have your Bougian knife ready for a crike if you're going to need it, just like any anticipated difficult airway or any airway that, for that matter. All right. I, w- I want to talk about after you have intubated the patient, everyone's high-fiving, you've done your RSI, you're successful. I want to talk a little bit about vent settings. Now, sometimes you only have one lung, so I imagine the vent settings are going to be a, a bit different. Dr. Weingart, how would you adjust your vent settings for the massive hemoptysis patient that has been intubated? Yeah. So, you know, most patients in the eMERGE are going to be on volume control modes. And that's actually my preference to teach as well. So in that situation, you might think, oh, there's one lung, I'm going to have the uh, normal tidal volumes. But there's actually a bunch of dead space that comes along with both the apparatus, the endotracheal tube, and any other additional equipment distal to the Y of the ventilator and uh, the patient's own anatomical dead space. So what I like to do is I like to subtract 100, 150 from what I would normally put the patient on and then have the rest. So for instance, if I was going to put a patient on 600, I'd say, okay, I'm taking off 150. Now I got 450 left. I'll have that. So that's 225 and I'll add that back to the 150. And now that's my tidal volume setting. And you know, it doesn't have to be exact. Just don't go crazy. Just don't put the patient on 600 with single lung ventilation is what it comes down to. But if you've just intubated them and they're still in the trachea, well, then it's just normal lung setting. So we're only talking on the patient where you've actually main stemmed either the left or the right. Then you'd subtract, let's make it easy, Anton, subtract 100, divide the rest in half, add it back to the 100. That's your tidal volume setting. Got it. We've been talking about the importance of understanding that this uh, is a respiratory problem, not a hemodynamic problem. But occasionally you will get someone with massive hemoptysis who ends up getting into hemodynamic trouble. 
let's say you've got a patient who dumps their pressure. Maybe it's from the intubation. Maybe it's from the bleeding. Uh, how do you address hemodynamic instability in the patient with massive hemoptysis? So this is actually right in our wheelhouse, right? This is a patient who's critically ill, who's hypotensive. There's no magic to the fact that the blood's coming from their lungs. One, you should sort of be happy with yourself that you're able to keep up with that much blood loss. Like your team's working very well that this person is still breathing despite massive hemorrhage. And then treat them like any other massive hemorrhage patient. And also understand that don't get fixated on the bleeding. If this person is profoundly hemodynamically unstable, there could be additional things going on. Maybe we're going down that PE pathway again. Maybe this is sepsis. But in the end, we're treating this like undifferentiated shock with associated hemorrhage. Resuscitate your hemorrhage, support their blood pressure, get that CAT scan so you can figure out what's going on and get them to the definitive location of treatment, be it with thoracic surgery, vascular surgery, hopefully interventional radiology. But yeah, don't overthink this. Fluids, massive resuscitation, vasopressors as need be, and go from there. There is nothing special here. Don't worry. It's not some unique. This isn't like an Addisonian crisis or something else going on. This is, this is our Emerge wheelhouse now, and we're all equipped to deal with that. Great. Fantastic. And we mentioned that anticoagulant reversal is going to be important to do early on. We're not going to go over all of anticoagulant reversal. We covered that in detail in episode 89, I think it was. We've talked about TXA already, but in terms of just treating coagulopathies and anticoagulant reversal, Dr. Tillman, just the quick run-through of just the few things we should be thinking about that we might want to throw at the patient who's bleeding. So remember your use of PCC for patients who are on drugs that are amenable to that. So that's usually warfarin. Depending if you have... Uh, direct inhibitors and what reversals you have for that. At my shop, we actually use PCC for everything because we don't have the other direct reversals. In patients who are coagulopathic due to underlying deficiencies, then they're going to need some fresh frozen plasma. Hard to get an INR less than two, nearly impossible to get less than 1.5, but use your FFP. Make sure you remember that calcium is part of the clotting cascade, so ensure their calcium is normal. If you're giving them a massive resuscitation, add back the calcium. And then we always talk about TXA. TXA is related to fibrinogen. So if the fibrinogen is less than two, or you suspect it's going to be, order either your shop's going to use cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate, whichever one your shop uses, order that and get it down. As far as platelets go, platelets are very annoying to deal with. We understand that people who are on antiplatelet agents, the evidence suggests at least some brain injuries, giving them more platelets doesn't seem to do anything. If the platelets are less than 50, definitely replace them. If they have renal failure and have this idea of uremic platelets, I do use DDAVP. I've used it in the ICU. Does it make the platelets work better? Maybe. So really, I think if they're on an anticoagulant, get your PCC. If their INR is above two, get your FFP. If their fibrinogen is less than two, it's all about two, get fibrinogen or cryo and add on your adjuncts being your calcium and potentially DDAVP. Wow, everything you need to know about physiologic bleeding in 90 seconds. That was incredible. Yay! I want to talk about definitive management of these patients. So just like definitive management of bleeding from any source, it's all about source control. And we're probably not going to be doing source control in the emergency department. It's going to be upstairs. But 
both of you have worked in ICUs extensively. Can you just give us a sense of what goes on upstairs once we've stabilized the patient in the emergency department? Let's say we've intubated them and they're going somewhere outside the emergency department. Maybe it's IR, maybe it's the ICU first. Can you just give us an idea of sort of the variety of things that happen and who makes the decisions and just so that we we know who to talk to and how to talk to them when they leave the emergency department? So I can tell you from my perspective, and then we'll see if things happen differently where Scott works. But often this is a conversation between IR and thoracics. The hope for most of these patients is we can get them to IR just because it's so much less invasive. Understanding what happens sort of in real life, IR is either already doing a procedure, they're doing an EVT for a stroke with neurovascular or something else. So IR is never ready. You got to call on the team or the team's working. So they'll come up to us in ICU while we continue to do the exact same thing that's been happening in emergency departments, stabilizing them, protecting their lung and going from there. And then most of these patients end up going to IR. The minority will need a surgical intervention. These are people who either have a lesion that's just not amenable to interventional indications, or these are people who have a fistula of some kind. So these are the aortic grafts that have sort of eroded into their lungs. So most of the time, going to IR, because this is a discussion between a surgical and interventional, so both interventions, just different people doing it, the conversation tends to happen where I work between IR and thoracics. And because this patient's being admitted to ICU, ICU tends to facilitate those conversations. But ideally, this person goes to intervention immediately. Immediately is, of course, always dependent on when the angio suite or the operating room is available. Not sure if in the States you have more fun tools than we have. Dr. Tillman, that's what happens at your place, which is an academic uh, city hospital that has access to pretty much anything you would want in Canada. What about in community hospitals? What's going to happen there? Sure. So I don't do community eMERGE anymore, although I used to. And I can certainly remember having to transfer one patient for hemoptysis. The key thing about these is these conversations start very early because at least in the shop I worked in, there wasn't CT. X-ray was a nine to five intervention. So these are people who would come in. We'd see they had massive hemoptysis. And at that point in time, I would be consulting my supporting services early because of the way at least things in Ontario work. Interventional radiology does not accept transfers. They help support people who are transferred. So I would consult through thoracics for this. So I speak with a thoracic surgeon to help guide our management decisions. And part of that discussion comes all the way back. Do I intubate for transfer? So what's the safest way? I'm riding in the bus with this patient regardless. But is their airway protected or are we letting them spontaneously cough? Then I have a thoracic surgeon as the accepting physician most of the time. That way they can help liaise with the interventional radiologist at whatever center they work with and also clarify with their intensivists. So in the community setting, the consult happens before the intubation and it goes through the surgical specialty. That's, of course, always going to depend on the community you work in. But that's how the system worked for me when I used to do community eMERGE. Excellent. And Dr. Weingart, in the States, does it work much differently? No, not much differently at all. I'll say a couple things that might be slight differences. If 
IR is available, they're almost always going to be well served by going and getting their bronchial artery embolization. You know, that, like we said, that's 90% of this massive hemoptysis group. Uh, if there's a delay, then generally someone's going to try a bronchoscopy, not even necessarily for therapeutic approach, but one, it helps to see what actual internal lesion may be there. But what it really could help with is if this patient was mainstem intubated to actually temporize them. That's not a stable situation. You know, a lot of eMERGE docs, they, they congratulate themselves. Oh, we, we, we actually, we got it down the right pipe and now the bleeding's not as bad. Um, but these patients wind up having massive physiologic shunt from only having one lung ventilated. And it's not a stable situation. So if with a bronchoscope, the blocker could actually be placed to only knock off a segment rather than an entire lung, then that's a huge win, even if they are going to embolization. So someone smart is going to try a bronchoscope bronchoscopy. Now, if no one's smarts available, then I'll try my hand at it. And, you know, I have pretty good experience with blockers, but nowhere near what the cardiothoracic anesthesiologists have. And I have some experience with bronchoscopy, but nowhere what the interventional pulmonologists have. So if one of those folks are available, then let's get them to the bedside. But if not, you know, being able to do a little bit more of an elegant blockade rather than just right or left mainstem could be really useful while you're waiting for the IR table to open up. So I'm going to hop a bit on what Scott said there, because I agree, a bronchial blocker can sometimes help preserve as much lung as you can. If it happens that you need to be the person doing that, hopefully it's not you. But if you are the person doing that and you have the skills, make sure you liaise with your respiratory team to ensure you have the right adapter. Because more than once, I've seen someone stick a blocker down an ET tube and then connect it to the same adapter that we use for ventilating people and realize that, that that's impossible. You can't have a blocker stick out of a tube with a single adapter. There are split adapters that are designed to seal around the blocker. I would be very surprised if most people know where those are. They're not routinely kept in the emergency department. So in Canada, at least, speak with your RT colleagues and make sure they have access to the connector that splits to allow one side to have a blocker and one side to actually be connected to the ventilator or else you're in a very awkward situation where the blocker's in place but now they cannot be ventilated because they can't hook up. Yeah, I mean, to to make even easier what Bork just said, if you don't know what you're doing, don't try this. It's what it comes down yeah. to. Yeah, fair enough. All right, any last thoughts about the management of patients with hemoptysis in the emergency department? The key things that I really take away is remembering patients are great at coughing and understanding that the decision in debate should be one where you have your friends with you and it's all about suctioning to have a clear view and intubation is going to temporize you to get to a solution. So in my brain, try not to intubate, try not to debate, try not to intubate, cat scan them, need to intubate, get all of your suction and all of your friends and go from there. Wow, I was going to do this big long review, but that pretty much, I couldn't do better than that in a shorter time period. Thanks so much to both of you for your energetic insights into the sometimes scary world of hemoptysis. Hopefully, the next time one of our listeners is faced with a patient coughing up a bucket of bright red blood, they'll feel a bit more confident managing them and hopefully saving a life. So thank you, gentlemen. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Anton. Anton. 